Hey guys, I'm Josh. I had the privilege of uh, teaching today from Acts chapter 4 and 5. and um, Pretty difficult passage, so I want you to lean in. And what's going to be really important as you lean in and learn about this crazy, messed up, broken story is I just need you to hold on to that. Those lines you were just singing and listening to just literally two minutes, three minutes ago. Uh, that, that statement, your banner, your banner over us, your covering over us is love, unfailing love. I want you to cling to that, to that hope and that promise from God that he provides covering for you, provides protection for you, and loves you, and um, really, really important. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for that banner to be real in your family right now. That we would take a deep breath together, knowing that we're loved, and then we would jump into these scriptures and ask the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what only He can. Right? And if you read in Isaiah uh, 55, it says, Our thoughts are not His thoughts, and our ways are not His way. And as high as the heavens are from the earth, so are His thoughts, more thoughts and ways from our ways. And one of the ways by which we align our thoughts and ways is by opening up His Word. And so we're going to ask Him to to reveal those things to us. And what's so beautiful about that same passage in Isaiah 55 is um, Isaiah describes uh, that when we read the word, it's like rain, like precipitation coming to the, to the earth, right? And it always, what it says, it always has its correct yield, meaning that, and it says the word never yields or never returns void, meaning as we open this up, some really neat things are going to happen. So, Maybe this is brand new for you. Maybe you've never jumped into the scriptures before. Just know that the God of the universe is at work in these moments through his scriptures, specifically for you and for me. And his banner, his banner is over us. It's love, unfailing love. So would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, this is uh, so interesting and so strange and yet so beautiful that God, you, you see all things, you know all things, and you work in all things. And as you're seeing and working, God, you're doing it all for your glory. For us to be um, in awe of you. And, God, you do it for our good. Meaning in all these moments, even the fact that we're having to socially distance and go to church right now. and In our homes, just our family, our few friends. God, you're working in that. And it is for our good. And as we open these scriptures, that God, would, would you do what you promised to do? Would it not return void? Lord, would your scriptures and your message uh, be what we hear today? God, would you strike anything from the record that's not of you? God, if I mess it up, Lord, would you, would you please have your way? God, would only your words be heard? Would only your words be digested? So I love what John the Baptist says. God, he says that he— must decrease as you increase. And so, God, would your word increase in all of our ears, in all of our minds? Would you give us supernatural attention span? Would you give us the ability to sit and listen and receive? And God, I love also what you say, Jesus, in the end of your Sermon on the Mount. And whoever hears these words of mine and puts them in the practice is like the wise builder who built his house on the rock. God, would we hear these words and would we put them into practice? I pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So happy to be with you. Uh, you want to grab your Bibles, your phone, and go ahead and pull up Acts. That's A-C-T-S, not A-X. It stands for the Actions of the Apostles. And in just a few minutes, we're going to read some, I'm telling you, some, some crazy, complicated, 
fear-inducing scriptures, and so I'm happy to, that we get to do this together. So you can go ahead and get prepared for that. And let me just kind of explain to you what, what we're doing here in this series. And so this is kind of part two of a series we started back in February on the Holy Spirit. And uh, so when you start to learn about the Holy Spirit, there's kind of this, this I don't know, this two-pronged approach maybe. This, first, we've got to understand who the Holy Spirit is. He's not some impersonal power, but a powerful person, the third part of the Trinity. And I'll kind of remind you of that in just a second. And you've got to understand the role of the Holy Spirit. So we've got to learn about the Holy Spirit. And then, then, so step one is getting an introduction and understanding the information. That's what we've been doing. That's what we did back in February. Now, step two of this, of the two-pronged approach, is to actually allow the Holy Spirit to apply this in our world through our lives, right? And so, to, in order to kind of really understand what the Holy Spirit's at work doing right now in these crazy times in our lives, in our world, in our nation. The Holy Spirit is at work. It's probably important that you understand who the Holy Spirit is and uh, what, what he's up to, right? And so in order to understand that, you've got to understand the Bible. And to understand the Bible, you need to uh, kind of understand the whole story about the Bible, okay? So the, the Bible is 66 books, but they're not like cute little chapters, books, just kind of all telling their own story. They tell one story, one story. They have one hero. They have one king. They have one Lord, right? They just tell one story. The whole book, the uh, Old Testament, which kind of talks about the beginning of how we got here. Not only how we got here, but why we got here. Kind of displays and explains what's so broken about us, and then offers us kind of a, a solution to the brokenness, right? And so the way that we talk about this around here a whole bunch is we, we use a, a few words, and you, you may probably recognize them if you're brand new. This is helpful for you. We use these words to talk about the whole story of the Bible. We talk about creation, we talk about fall, we talk about redemption, and we talk about restoration, and there's one more word that I'll introduce you to today. Again, it's called consummation, right? And so the way by which this works is that there is a story that's always been playing out, but in order to understand the story, you got to understand the writer of this story and what kind of initiated uh, the creation of the story, right? And so what the scriptures tell us, which is so different than any other worldview, right? Any other monotheistic worldview where there's a God, he seems bored, he's lonely, and then all of a sudden he decides to create a world so that he can be loved and adored, right? That, that's kind of the understanding of the, the, the God of the universe is that he was maybe, I don't know, a little insecure and decides that he needs attention, right? That's kind of the belief about the 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 creator God, if you believe there's a creator God. But that is not at all what the scriptures reveal to us. In fact, what we understand from the very beginning is before there was, there was God, right? And there was a God, creator God, but what's so unique about this God, it's one God in three distinct persons and parts, right? And so what we understand in the scriptures is there's this God, and one of them is described as God the Father, right? God the Father, and then you got God the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. And they all existed in three perfect parts, three perfect persons, one God, right? If your mind is really, really ready to explode, that's fair. That's all of us. We kind of go, it's hard to explain, but it's beautiful when you start to understand it. And what we understand about this God is long before we showed up, long before words were spoken to create this whole universe, that God in three distinct persons was beautiful and perfect and had infinite love, right? That it had perfect community, that God was not insecure, that God was not needy, that God was self-providing, self-sustaining, right? He needed nothing, right? And what we know about this God, which is so different than this monotheistic God who's lonely and insecure, is this God was loving and gracious and had infinite love from the very beginning. 
and you understand this, we understand this, is if you have something a lot more than you need, right? A lot of excess. What do you do? You start finding people to give the excess to, right? Your plants grow too much and you have too many black-eyed Susans in the yard. What do you do? You dig them up, but you don't want to throw them away. You see if a neighbor or a friend wants to put them in their yard, right? When you have too much, when you have more than you really can use, then you find an, an object, a person, a recipient to, to start uh, delivering that to. So imagine this. So beautiful. This God, who was infinitely loving, had immeasurable amounts of love more than was necessary. So what did that God do? That God decided to create a universe and create recipients of that love. So that banner, that banner could cover us with love, unfailing love. And so the God of the universe decided to create human beings. It tells us in the beginning in Genesis that he was, uh, we were created in his image and likeness. So that God has this conversation with himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and an act of God's will, an act of the Father's will decides to implement this world. So what I love about this, really, really important for you to understand is um, there's lots of theories and conversations about how we arrived here, you know, 2020 with a pulse, breathing, photosynthesis, all those things, life, all that kind of stuff, sun out there, whatever, all those things, right? Um, there is, there's a lot of theories and ideas of how we got here. But none of those theories in any way explain why we would be here. And know this, this we now understand, is that this infinite God who had infinite love decides to um, invite us into that. And here's what's crazy. He didn't decide to invite us into it just for a few years. He decided that he would invite us. And you'd see it through all the scriptures, who he calls his children, right? He decided to invite us into this for all eternity. And it was going to be beautiful. And it was a perfect plan and is a perfect plan, which usually leads to well, if God created this beautiful, perfect world, then why is it so messy? Right? Like, why? Why is it so broken? Why do I not want to read the news or open up my social media or even have any conversations with people online right now? Like, this world is filled with vitriol and it's broken, right? People are mean and angry. And if this loving God created all this, how in the world does that stuff show up? Really, really important. So an act of the Father's will initiated this perfect world. Now, What's really, really beautiful about this, and you know this if you have children, eventually you, you know that they are responsible for their own choices. And at some point, they're going to have to make their own decisions, and they're going to have to be recipients of the consequences of those decisions. And no matter how much you love your kid, how much you want to fix that, how much you want to protect that, how much you want to put bumpers around them everywhere, you know, and we tremble with this, all of us as parents, that at some point, they will make some decisions that will cause them pain, and there is nothing we can do to stop it. The God of the universe decides to invite people in to be recipients and objects of his love, but he is not a tyrant. And he invites us in with the ability to, to walk our own life and do our own thing, right? And so if, if creation is an act of the Father's will, what we now understand, humankind, is uh, we see it in the book of Genesis as well, that if creation is an act of the God's will, the only part we play in this so far is we just mess it up. Right? And so our choices, long, left long enough to our devices and decisions, will eventually lead to our demise. Right? And so what we see is an act of Father's will, creation, created this to pour out infinite love, an act of human will, an act of mankind's will. What we get to participate in and what we've done is we've separated ourselves from that perfect love and grace. Right? So at some point, all of us, all of us, 
every single human being, has either directly and defiantly said to God, we like our plan better than yours, or indirectly and subconsciously, because we didn't believe that God existed, that infinitely loving, infinite, perfect Father, that God, we didn't believe he existed, so we said, if it's to be, it's up to me, right? And so uh, many of us knew there was a God, and say, we like our plans better than yours, that's called sin, and we walked away from God. That's what Adam and Eve did. Through deception and all sorts of brokenness, they ushered in this broken world, right? So a lot of us did that intentionally. Many of us just never really understood who God was and said, the only solution I have is to take care of myself, take care of my family, and nail the whole world. Your whole world is up to you doing the right thing every single time. And we know, we know. We know that's an impossible expectation for human beings. And so if, if an act of the Father's will was to usher in creation, the act of human will was to bring about this brokenness that we see all around us. And that is a terrible story, and we read about it every day. And what's so crazy is um, most of the conversation says, you know what we need? We need new policies, new government, better leaders, better humans leading all of this. But deep down we know, you can read thousands of years of human history, right? That even the greatest movements with the greatest intentions eventually start turning into self-seeking, self-motivating, self-providing, self-sustaining movements, Right? And so what's so crazy about the world we're in now is we're going, it is broken, it needs to be fixed, and a lot of people have lots of opinions how it's going to be fixed. But many of them believe that it's another human, another person, another leader, another government, another politician, another political party, that that's going to be the thing that fixes it. But if, as history continues to repeat itself, what we kind of all are faced with is... if. If it's up to just a bunch of humans to fix this, we're all in real big trouble, which is why you look around and see depression and anxiety and suicide rates continuing to, you know, climb. Because we look at this world and we go, yeah, 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 it's broken. And if it's up to me to fix it, I feel so helpless. And that is the terrible story and the dark cloud of our day and our world, right? But that's not the end of the story because what the scriptures tell us, so beautiful, the whole Old Testament just shows this over and over again. Human beings continuing to cause damage to each other. The God of the universe sending in prophets to go, do you not see that he, I am loving, gracious, and I am kind, and I am slow to anger, abounding in love, right? I am steadfast in my pursuit of you. Do you not see that? The whole Old Testament continues to declare this. And, goes, and one day, maybe you will see it. Because we know that fear runs you. We know that pain is what you respond to. And the only change is not through more data, more logic, more arguments. The only real change happens through legitimate experience. And one day, I'm going to send my son so you can experience him. You can touch him. You can hear him. You can smell him. You can be close to him. You can laugh with him. And I'm going to send my son so you can experience that kind of love. And that son, my son, God the Father, God the Son, like that son is going to show you how much you're loved. And he's going to show you that anyone's value is what someone is willing to pay for them, right? And the God of the universe is going to step down this planet, Jesus. And he's going to come, and he's going to come and pay the price you deserve to pay. There is a debt to be paid. There is a bounty on your head, right? And in order for you to be bought back, that's the word redemption, the only way that happens is if I do it. So, if creation is an act of the Father's will, 
in the fall as an act of human will, then we understand, if you read the scriptures, redemption, this story of being invited back to the table, to being welcomed back to sons and daughters, that story is an act of Jesus' will. He literally says to his father, I don't know that I can handle this, but not my will, but your will be done. And so he submits himself, dies a criminal's death, lives the life we should have lived, and then dies the death we should have died, and then invites us back to the table. Right? The scriptures tell us the wages of sin is death, meaning there is a price to be paid. There is a wage to be paid. But the gift of God, the gift, his grace, is eternal life through Jesus, his son. So there's this redemption that's offered to us. And it's a beautiful story. But usually you go, well, that is a beautiful story, but I've prayed the prayer, I've said the thing, I believed that for a while, I've asked God to come through, I've done those things, and while I believe that one day that'll all be kind of reconciled, but our world is still really broken. And if Jesus came to fix and restore all things and make all things new and all those things, then why is our world still so broken? Why is my family still so messed up? Right? Then why is that where we still are if this is this real story? And the reason we haven't really got the whole story, the reason we struggle with this and have pain and sorrow and disappointment and sadness and even some contempt towards the creator God is because we haven't seen him at work in the way that we thought we'd see him at work. And so what Romans tells us, the first book says that we actually decided to start worshiping creation rather than worshiping creator. Our own lives, our own comfort, our own security, our own materials. And because we thought that God sent his son to redeem us, and yet we don't always feel really redeemed. And the reason being is there's actually another part of the story. Another part of the story that you see throughout the scriptures, and it's called restoration, right? It's this part of the story. It's that at some point we'll make all things right and all things new and all things good again. In fact, Jesus kind of began the process of restoration when he taught his disciples, his followers, how to pray. And he said, our Father who art in heaven, right? This is how you pray. Hallowed be your name. You are so great and you are so good. And then he says this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hear this. In Chester County, as it is in heaven. Right? In the mid-Atlantic region, in the northeast U.S., throughout the nation, on earth, as it is in heaven. So he said that the goal of this wasn't just one day we'd get beamed up and be with God and all things would be good for us. We wasn't get to see our grandma again. Right? There's something so much more beautiful that that heaven... That world that we all long for, that we are protesting for, right? That world on earth as it is in heaven is what we long for today. And we're going, well, why can't that happen? Jesus saved me, but I can't fix this. We feel feel so ill-equipped and so inept to solve all these problems. And the reason being, remember, if God ushered in and created all this, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had infinite love, and they decided to pour that love on us to cover us, his banner covering us with that love, that unfailing love. And an act of the Father's will was to create it all. An act of human will was to mess it all up. An act of Jesus' will was to invite us back to the table to pay the price. And the big piece that we have lost sight of and haven't focused on is the restoration piece. And so if this was an act of the Son's will to buy us back— there's still another part of God that still is at work that we have not seen, that we have lost sight of, and so the act of the Holy Spirit's will is to bring about restoration in our world, to bring about it, to, to start bringing God's kingdom back to earth. And 
Uh, Francis Chan writes a book about the Holy Spirit, and he so rightly titles it Forgotten God, right? You hear the story that there's a creator God. He gave us Ten Commandments. We should obey them, keep them in the courthouse, right? That's that. We understand the part of how broken we are. Everybody has heard the bullhorn guy scream, repent, repent, ask Jesus to save you from your sins. We know that part. But this one is so confusing. We don't know how to lean into it or understand it or experience it. So we, we either ignore it altogether or many of us kind of pretend that, that, that the work that we're doing is actually his work, right? And so there's all this confusion about it. And so today we're going to spend some time really trying to understand this part of God and what he's planning on doing. And this is not something you manufacture. This is not something you create. So the, the, hear me, hear me, hear me. There is no new expectations of you today. There's not going to be any more checklist items. There's not going to be seven steps on how you bring about change in this world. There's not going to be three steps. There'll be no alliteration in this. Because what I want you to understand is it is not your work. You are not doing the work to bring about restoration. The Holy Spirit is. And if we don't get this, we will look around us and see other people who the Holy Spirit is using and go, well, we want to look like that too. And what happens there is we start pretending, start acting like we're something that we're not. And I want you to see how God responds to that. And so today we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Before we get there, got a video for you. Nice little kids video about people dying. So would you enjoy? After Jesus went back up to heaven, Peter and the other disciples began telling everybody about Jesus. The people in the church gave to the church and shared all that they had with one another. Here you go, Peter! It's all I have! It's all of my money! I'm glad to share it with everyone else! Oh, I know you'll put it to good use! Thank you for being so generous! One day, a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold some of their land. Ananias brought part of the money to Peter, but lied and said it was the full amount. He kept the rest for himself, and his wife knew all about it. Here you go, Peter. It's all the money I got for selling some of my land. It's, it's hard to give it all away like this, but, you know, it's all for Jesus. Ananias, why have you let Satan get a hold of your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. Dude, the choice was yours whether to sell your land or not. You didn't even have to. And even after you sold it, the money was yours to give or not to give away. How could you do this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Then some men wrapped Ananias in a sheet and took him out and buried him. Three hours later, his wife Sapphira came in. She hadn't heard what happened. Hello, Peter. Do you mind if I ask you a question? Of course not. Ask me anything you want. Was this the amount of money you got for selling your land? Yes, it was. Me and my husband wanted to give you all the money we got for the land. We're generous <sighs> like that. Not again. How could you and your husband lie and test the spirit of the Lord like this? The same guys who buried your husband are right outside the door, and, and they're going to be carrying you out too. Instantly, Sapphira fell to the floor and died. 
Word spread quickly, and everyone in the church knew what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira because they had lied to God. Oh, well, that's a fun story, isn't it? So here's kind of the big point, and we'll wrap it up right here. If you lie, you die. You can hey, bring your kids on in. Hey, kids, sit around. Here's this. When you lie to mommy, you die. I'm just joking. That's not funny. And, uh, but that's what we see here, right? So what do we do with this story? I thought you just said that your banner, your banner over us is love, unfailing love. That doesn't seem like it's very loving, right? Literally, two people die. Does God do that? Did he punish them? Did he strike them dead? Right? Did, did they, did God make that happen? Like, did, or did Peter? Did Peter, like, you know, do some, you know, Abraka Yahweh or Abraka Jesus and Abraka Christ and all of a sudden they just died like how what what just happened by the way um as we're sorting through this and you know we really if you're a parent we 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 take um families the sanctity of a family and the importance of helping parents lead their kids like be their spiritual leaders and I mean, you, you're with them a lot more than we are. and We, we take that real serious. And yet, we're looking at, uh, I was looking all over for, like, good kids' curriculum on this story. There's just not much, right? We just, we just go right past that one. We'll cover the stoning of Stephen, but this one is weird, right? Because in that story, the, the bad guys kill Stephen, right? In this story, the good guy seems to kill Ananias and Sapphira. And you know what's even crazier? The name Ananias literally means God is gracious, so what do we do with that? Well, that's what we're going to take the next 30 minutes to cover. So join me. Now let's read through it. I'm going to start in Acts chapter 4, right where we picked up last week. Peter just has done some really amazing things, really, really amazing things. You know, he, he uh, in the name of Jesus, he invited um, a, a lame man to welcome me. Be clear there when I say Peter does some great things. I actually miscommunicated that. God does some great things through Peter. And Peter then makes sure, Peter and John make sure they understand that it's actually the Holy Spirit at work doing these things. The Holy Spirit is doing these things. And then all of a sudden, I, Peter prays for this big, beautiful unity and boldness in the church. And, and so what you're going to see now is you're going to see a bunch of humans empowered by the Holy Spirit, start surrendering their will back to this plan. And what we see here is kind of a glimpse of what's to come. And so um, if uh, you're not familiar with, there's an, a, a fourth part or a fifth part of the, the narrative of God, right? And it's called consummation. It's this, what you see in the scriptures in Revelation. It says, there'll be a day where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. We know that's not today, but one day we look forward to it, right? And it's described as this beautiful uh, wedding banquet feast where the, the groom, Jesus, comes and he gets his bride. That's all of us. And we are united and we're united in one. And so what we see in that moment in the consummation message is that if, if all this is happening, if uh, what we see here is when God's will, right, and the Son's will, and the Holy Spirit's will, right, and human will all kind of come and submit to one another in this beautiful picture of unity. And one day, that will be the story. That will be the story that we'll all get to experience. But that story won't happen today. And yet what you see in the scriptures, as you see this moment where all these humans are starting to bring in all the things that they have, and they're lining them up together and bring them in because they're going, no, 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 no. Not my will be done, but Christ's will be done. And the Holy Spirit is empowering them to do some really, really beautiful things. And so what we see happen here is 
there's this unity in people. And what you see when God starts doing really, really great work, when the Holy Spirit really starts moving, what you see happen every single time in the scriptures and in our lives, as we stop holding our things tightly, and we start loosening our hands towards our materials, towards created things, right? Towards all the stuff that will eventually end up in the landfill, including your car. At some point, your house will be rubble. Right? All these things that we cling tightly to, we start opening our hands and holding them very loosely. And guess what we start clinging to tightly instead? People. You see that? Because that's the, the work of the Spirit in us. So you're going to see, after this prayer for unity, these people are going to bring their hearts and minds together in unity. Scripture calls it in one accord, right? And they're going to start holding their things so loosely. What's mine is yours, right? And they're going to start clinging to each other tightly. And so I want you to see what this says, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, holding it loosely. But they shared everything they had, right? Picture of what it looks like to surrender your will, to invite the kingdom of heaven to this earth. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. There is started loosening their hands on their things, started clinging to other tightly. And what happened is this, the power of the Spirit was evident and on them. They didn't manufacture it. The power of the Spirit was on them, right? The power of the Spirit was on them. And what they noticed was God's grace, his gift to us. That's what the word means. This gift that we don't deserve, unmerited, we can't earn it. God was continuing to pour out his blessings. And it was evident for all to see. It was powerfully at work in them all. Watch this. There were no needy persons among them. Right? There's no needy persons. This is the picture of the coming kingdom. From, ta- uh, for, for, from time to time, those who own lands, who land or houses, sold them, and they brought the money from the sales. So hear me. This is not me telling you to sell your house. Not, not that kind of stuff. So just lean in with me here, okay? But they held their possession loosely. They clung to each other tightly and put them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had a need. Right? There is this, this, we hold our possession so loosely. And so the way by which they distributed this, right? Looks a little bit like socialism. No, don't, don't be offended by that. I'm not saying that works in our world. It doesn't, right? And the reason it doesn't is because human beings are broken and flawed. And no matter what the movement starts, eventually what happens is uh, people start becoming self-seeking, they want to be self-sustaining, self-preserving, right? And you will see real quickly in the scriptures where things really quick without a move of the Holy Spirit, right? In a perfect world, we hold everything in common. In a broken world, people take advantage of each other. So watch what happens next. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. Levite means he was one of the, from one of the tribes. Uh, Levi, that's the priestly tribe. That's where we get the word Leviticus. That's where we get the Bible term from, from the understanding of the priestly tribe. So Joseph was, you know, in his Ancestry.com, his 23andMe, he had, he was, he was full Jewish blood, right? Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Love this. I think we should get back to it. All these great nicknames. What happened to nicknames, right? Nicknames are beautiful. So they're like, we're not going to call you Joseph. There's way too many Josephs out here. Let's call you 
Barnabas because you are so encouraging, right? So this is not an original apostle, but this is a leader of leaders. And he kind of is a, he, if you are familiar with the, the, the diffusions of innovation, uh, this idea that there are innovators, early adopters, laggards, early majority, late majority, laggards, those kind of things, right? He is an innovator. This is a guy who continued to be moved by the Spirit to continue to push the church forward. Watch what it says here. Joseph, who called Barnabas, he sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this is a leader in this area, and people are watching, and they're celebrating. What kind of man must this be that the Holy Spirit would do that? He is so loosely holds this stuff and so tightly clings to people that he's given all of his possessions. So he's being celebrated. There's people watching, right? And don't know about Barnabas. There's multiple times where he's kind of leading the way. Uh, Here he's the lead giver, right? He is the first one to start giving in this way. Uh, You see later um, when when Saul gets converted to Paul, he was a Jew killer. I mean, he was a Jew who was a Christ follower's he killed them, right? Like he murdered them. He was standing in the way of the movement of the gospel. He was an oppressor with power and education and all those things, and he was a terrible tyrant. And then all of a sudden, he has this moment with Jesus where he is transformed. His, he goes blind, and his eyes are open, and another guy named Ananias, God's grace, different Ananias, comes and prays with him. And then God calls Saul, who becomes Paul, to go and be a missionary, to take this good news immediately. It's really important to you. You might have a broken life. You could have had a broken weekend last weekend, and God could transform you in a moment. But all these Christ followers are going, no, no, we don't trust you. That's a bad guy. Guess who decides to come in and trust? Who comes in and leads the way? Again, he's an innovator. He's a leader. Barnabas comes in and goes, no, no, no. We can trust what the Holy Spirit's doing in him. So you see him do that. Uh, in fact, in Acts chapter 11, we'll talk about this next week, week after, there's this moment where this Jewish Christian movement, where all these Jews convert to Christianity, then starts leaking out into non-Jews, right? That were called Gentiles. By the way, that's us. That's most of us, all of us probably. We're uh, the majority of us. We would be in that category. And guess who decides to start loving those outsiders first? It's Barnabas, Right? holds so loosely his possession so tightly to people. Barnabas does it there. Then later, um, there is this uh, really, really neat, uh, cool thing that happens when uh, Paul goes on a missionary journey. Guess who's the first one to go? I'll go with you. That's Barnabas. Then one of the guys they pick up um, in their missionary journey is a guy named John Mark, who we believe wrote the Gospel of Mark, right? And uh, John Mark is on fire with them. Barnabas is leading with them. And eventually John Mark, I don't know if he gets scared, worried, starts thinking about uh, his life, wants to self-preservation. He goes, I can't do this anymore. And Paul cuts him loose. He goes, okay, we're going. Then later, John Mark goes, no, no, I actually, I'm sorry. I should be in the middle of this. And Paul goes, I have no time for you. It's so weird. Paul writes so much about grace. Wasn't really that gracious in that moment. Guess who decides to welcome him back? Go, okay, Paul, you go your way. I'm going with John Mark again. Barnabas, right? And so you see this guy over and over again lead the way. You see people like that in the church, right? They're just so transformed by the work of the Spirit. They hold their things so loosely. They hold people so tightly. Right? And you see that in many of us, many of us. We, we look at them and go, there's something genuinely different about them. In fact, they're something so different about them. They're so different than I am. And then what do we do? Uh, we, instead of trying to mimic Christ, invite the Holy Spirit to do that in us, we just start trying to portray, portray ourselves similar to them. Right? It's what we call hypocrisy. 
And hypocrisy is this self-righteousness, this um, personal salvation where we believe we save ourselves through our good deeds, but not really our good deeds, through the celebration and of people that give us because they think we're better than we are. So imagine this. Barnabas comes in, leader of people, lover of people, holds this thing so loosely, holds people so tightly. So Barnabas comes in and gives his stuff away, and Ananias and Sapphira, and they look up and they go, we want that kind of attention. We want people to be impressed with us, like they're impressed with Barnabas. We want that to happen. We want this. Like, see an opportunity. They see an open door to, in, you know, to, to invade the local church, this brand new movement, and they see a way by which they can become leaders. They can become celebrated. They can have more Instachatgram followers, right? I mean, this is, this is their moment. This is where they go, okay, let me portray myself as this. Let me get to the mission field for a second and get some pictures with the babies, right? And so that, that's what we see here. And so all of a sudden, Ananias and Sapphira, they enter the story in Acts chapter 5, and they enter it with a scheme because they're still holding their things pretty tightly. But one of the things that they want that they don't have is this glory, this self-glory that comes from people who celebrate the Christian celebrities. They want to be Christian celebrities. And watch what happens. Verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, which means God is gracious, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Really, really nice of them. They're going to sell some property too, right? They're going to give. With his wife's full knowledge, really important that you see this because it comes back up later. With his wife's full knowledge, so that she's not tricked in this. She is an accessory to it, right? With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So he keeps some for himself. He comes up with a plan, and then he te- brings a, a good bit. So he sells the property. He holds back some stuff. Holds back some stuff, right? This is self-preservation, which is one of our gods. This is to, to make sure that we protect our comfort, right, level? To make sure we have enough, right? That's comfort. That's another one of our idols, right? And so he holds some back, and he brings the rest to the apostles' feet. So what we see here is the invasion of the church with hypocrisy. And hypocrisy literally is just pretending to be someone you're not to try to impress people with your behavior, right? We, we all do it. You've done it, I've done it. And where we exaggerate our spiritual life, how much we pray, how much we know, how godly we are. And sometimes we like just let it leak out a little bit, right? And so what, what we see in this hypocrisy is it's the opposite of the gospel. You see, um, where hypocrisy tends to take the biggest roots, two, two things. Uh, the first one is an absence of the gospel. When Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that word ashamed literally can be the same word offended, right? Because the reality is the story of the gospel is offensive. What it tells us is that we are not good. You are not good. You cannot please God on your own. You can't do anything to make this world any better. In fact, Jesus tells us in uh, his kind of last discourse before he's arrested and murdered, brutally murdered, and you know, that whole story of the crucifixion. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. The gospel says you can do nothing. You can amount to nothing. Nothing really good and significant. Nothing will happen in your li- on your own absent the gospel, which is offensive, right? It literally tells us we are not good. We are not worthy. You deserve death is the kind of the, the proclamation of the gospel. What we deserve is death, right? That's why this word of it's not fair is a really 
interesting one that I hear my kids say all the time, and I tell you this all the time. They'll go, it's not fair. And I'm like, you're right. It's not fair. If it were fair, we would all be brutally murdered on a cross. So eat your vegetables, right? Because this idea of fairness is going, no, no, no. The, the story of the gospel is offensive because it literally says, on our own, we are not that good. So if good's going to happen in our world, in our church, in our community, it's only going to happen by the work of the Spirit through His people, not by something we manufacture. But we look out there, and we don't know how to do that, so we go, well, what do we do now? Maybe we should just manufacture something. Ananias and Sapphira go, we want in the club. We want people to be impressed with us. But that's, that Spirit is not at work in us, right? This is fake wokeness right? And we experience this all around us right now. Some of you are manufacturing emotions that you don't really feel right now, right? Just to be really candid with you, some of you are not that bothered by racism. But at the same time, we sure better pretend like we are in this moment, right? And the reason you're not is because there hasn't been this deep move of the gospel in your life that tells you, you are unworthy. I am unworthy, as unworthy as anyone else in the room, regardless of the color of their skin. Right? There is this deep work that has to happen that's where we just acknowledge that we are chief sinners. That on our own, the only thing we'll do is destroy ourselves or destroy our family. If it's to be, it's not up to me. Right? The story of the gospel is we are broken and we can't fix ourselves. And Barnabas got that. Ananias and Sapphira go, oh, we're not so sure we believe that. You see, the gospel, the gospel roots out hypocrisy. Because what the gospel tells us is you and I are sinners and broken. Our kids should not be surprised when we mess up. And we shouldn't cover up. We should repent. We should acknowledge those things. So that's the first one. That's, one of the, that's where the gospel takes its roots, or that's where the hypocrisy takes its roots in the church, is where we don't acknowledge, understand, and preach this news that is offensive to us, not to others, to us, right? And the second part where this really takes its roots is in, um, when there's no community, whether it's just pretense, where you just show up at the church on the weekend, log in once a week, and have no community, no accountability. There is no vulnerability. There is no explanation of what's going on in our life and confession and acknowledgement, right? There's just pretense. And we got to figure out how to be in each other's lives and be honest, right? Struggle and doubt are welcome in the church, right? They, they don't make you inadequate. They don't make you less of a Christian. In fact, struggle and doubt shows up early on in the Gospels and early on even in Jesus' resurrection. It's struggle and doubt that grows our faith. And so this idea that we have to give all these cute answers and say all these cute things and have all the right answers, it's okay to shrug your shoulders and go, I don't understand this story. I don't understand how the God of the universe who's loving strikes two people dead or at least allows them to die, right? That's okay for you to be there, right? That the, it's part of community. You can share that with your kids. You can share that with your community group, with your home fellowship group. You can talk about your struggles, and you should, right? We cannot continue to cloak ourselves with this fake righteousness. Because you can see in this story that God has no interest and no use for fake righteousness, right? There is nothing we offer God on our own that's any good. It's just Jesus' purchase of our lives and the Holy Spirit's work in our lives that transforms us, right? So the way I want you to see this is if you've become a Christian, I want you to imagine a lot like if you just bought something online and you're waiting like for that, like on Etsy or I don't know, Zulily, Zulily or Zulily or Wish.com or whatever, and you buy something, but you don't know when it's going to ship. So you purchase it and you keep going back to the tracking of it. And it just says processing, 
processing. That means it hasn't arrived yet, but you know it's somewhere past purchase and not at your home yet. It's processing. That's how we have to see our Christian faith. You are in process. You are in process, right? You are not who God will eventually make you to be when we get to glory, when we get to that consummation piece. We are in process. That doesn't mean positionally. Positionally, you are holy and righteous. You stand before God positionally, completely covered. Not because of what you've done, but Jesus goes, no, no, no. I've, I've welcomed him to the table. I've covered his admission price. I am the one who's paid for it. So God sees us while in process, but is positionally perfect and righteous before him because of what Jesus did. So there's two different pieces. Yes, we stand before God, blemish-free because of what Jesus did. And yet, that's not because we have to pretend to not have blemishes. We are in process, right? And so these guys go, no, 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 we can't allow them to see us in process. Let's just go ahead and sell the property, hold on to some of it, and watch what happens. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept it for yourself? Some of the money you received for the land. See this? I want you really to see this. Ananias, how is it that Satan, great deceiver, has so filled your heart? That is really interesting here. So first time Satan shows up in the post-gospels, in, in the work of people's lives in the book of Acts. And you see what Peter says here. Luke, the writer, is intentional about this, I believe. And he is, he's showing us a contrast between being filled with the Spirit. That's what it says in Acts 2. Right? Filled with the Spirit. And it says you're filled. How is, your, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have what? Lied to the Holy Spirit. You see this Holy Spirit who literally wants to do the restorative work in your life and in our world. You have lied to that Spirit and said, I got it from here. Every time we pretend, every time we say something about our fake righteousness that is not real, we are lying to the God of the universe. And what we are saying to the Holy Spirit is, we don't need you. We got it covered, which is a lie, right? And so he's going, Ananias, your name means God's grace. Why would you allow your heart to be filled with that deception, right? The lie of our world is follow your heart and, and progress up the ladder, right? More, more, better, better. You do it, you do it, you do it. And if you set your mind anything, you can achieve anything, right? Satan would love for you to believe that you can do it all on your own. So Peter says to Ananias, why, why in the world? Now watch what he says. He actually offers him some logic. Watch what he says here. This isn't about the piece of property. Verse 4. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Hey, buddy, like, why are we lying about this? Didn't it belong to you? It was your property. God had given it to you, gracious to do whatever you wanted to do to be a good steward of it. It was your property. And after it was sold, like, you sold it, you're allowed to sell it. Wasn't the money at your disposal? Like, this isn't that you had to be a part of the, the, the new mob that says, give away everything, do everything. This isn't, this is not mob rule that you need to do what everybody else does because now it's in vogue right? This isn't those things. This is, hey, you are allowed to do whatever you want to. There is no judgment, Ananias. You could have kept the property. You could have sold the property. You could have gone and bought a bass boat if you wanted one. Like this, it was your money. It was your property. What made you think of doing such a thing? What made you think about that? Like, did you think giving a little bit of that money, withholding the rest? Because here's what you're saying. I want people to be impressed with my spirituality, but I don't really trust God with this stuff. Won't you be impressed with my spirituality? But I actually want to trust me, keep my cupboards full, keep my stash, you know, available for myself. And this is what he says. He says, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. You've not lied to human beings. You've lied to God. So every time that we offer our fake righteousness, every time we try to earn our fake salvation, 
by presenting whatever that is, we are lying to the God of the universe. And what we're telling him is that we believe that we're in charge of our own lives. We believe that we can earn our own salvation. We believe we should get our own credit. We believe that we want the glory of people on us, right? I mean, that's a lie. And so when you think about it, you go, well, yeah, he lied, but why does he lie? And I've done a lot of work on this, guys. I made a ton of work. And here's what, maybe this will be helpful for you. Um, when you lie, I mean, we can, what you do, we all do, we all have, right? So this is a judgment. This is just, hey, safe space to think about this for a second. When you lie, you lie for one of two reasons, right? I think this is distilled gen- generalization, but I think this is accurate. When you lie, every time you lie, it's for one of two reasons. Either. You don't trust God with your value or you don't trust God with your future, right? Why do you lie about your weight? Why do you lie about how much money you have in the bank? Why do you lie about how much debt you have, right? Why do you, why do you lie about those things? Why do you lie about your resume? Why do you lie about how good you were in sports in high school, right? It's because we don't trust that the God of the universe determines our value by his death on a cross, we have to manufacture our own value, right? So we lie about it. We lie about those things. And when we lie, what you got to understand is we're not really lying just to people. We're lying to the God of the universe because we're telling him we, don't be- we believe we earn our own value. It doesn't come from him, right? That's one. The other one is we don't trust God with our future, right? That's why you lie to your spouse sometimes because you don't want to deal with the ramifications of the truth, right? You don't trust that if you tell the truth that uh, your future is going to be okay, that your weekend is going to be okay that your job's going to be secure, that you'll still be able to have enough money next week, that you'll still be loved and accepted, right? So we, don't, we lie either because we don't trust God with our value or we lie because we don't trust that God sees all things, works in all things, and bends and shapes all things for our good and his glory all the time. Concurrently, that's what's happening. We don't trust that. And so we lie about it. But when you, when you do those things, all of us, all of us, hear me, hear me. We do that not just to the people around us, not just ourselves, not to our kids. We do that to the God of the universe. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. In great fear, seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. He's dead. And he's now in a, in a tomb. Peter's interns showed up. It's a terrible job for an intern, right? And go and put the dead guy in the ground. See what it says there? And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. So there's something there. You've got to pay, pay attention. This is not a, a make-believe story. This isn't, oh, yeah, it's just a cute little parable. No, this is a, a real guy, Ananias, whose name means God is gracious, who dies. This is a true story. This is not allegory. This is a true story, and he dies. How do you receive that? Like, right, just a second, just quick body scan. How do you feel about the dead guy? Do you think Ananias is worse than me or you? I'll tell you, he's not worse than me. I'm coming to that conclusion. You can make your own conclusions about yourself. He dies. How, like, how do you view that? How do you view God in light of it? Like, does it make you a little uncomfortable? Are you, like, if your kids are around, you're going, oh, I'm not even sure how to talk about this. He died. How do we receive this? Like, how do we receive this story? Fear, probably a little bit, of the God of the universe. A little discomfort of that might not be the God you want to worship because you want to worship the teddy bear God, right? Sweet one, the banner that covers us, unfailing love. This doesn't, how do you, you confused? Well, it gets worse, so let's keep reading and keep wrestling with those things. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. So three hours later, the reality is 
there's a real possibility. We just read last week uh, that Peter was at this gate called Beautiful because uh, at 3 o'clock, you've got a 9, a 12, and a 3, these three-hour segments where people would show up and pray. This is part of the public righteousness, right? So they'd show up and pray. That's what Jews did, and so Christians just kind of adapted that. So real possibility is maybe the 9 o'clock session, they knew Peter would be there, so Ananias shows up. And then the 12 o'clock session, they knew other people would be there praying with Peter, so the wife shows up. So more than likely, this is a public presentation. So she shows up three hours later also to get some glory, and so she shows up. Um, and uh, not knowing what had happened. So she doesn't know her husband's dead. They don't have cell phones or social media. There's no video cameras. There's no phone cameras. There's none of that. So she has no idea. Peter asked her, tell me the price you and Ananias got for the land. Tell me, oh, tell me, is this the price you, and, uh, price you and Ananias got for the land? Yeah, she said, this is the price. Okay, this is the price. And you got the price. Yeah, that's the price. So she looked him straight in the face and lies to him. Again, remember, she knew ahead of time, we read that earlier, that... Um, that they had schemed this together, right? So she's an accessory. And uh, Peter asked her, I'm sorry, this, and she said, yes, that's the price. And Peter said to her again, how do you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. So listen, here's the thing. A couple things there kind of point out is um, this isn't, Maybe it's, well, wife was just submitting to her husband. Well, there's things you shouldn't submit to. Sin is not one of the things that God calls you to submit to if it's that. And two, you are, you are accountable and responsible for your own behavior and your own actions. Right? And Ananias means, you know, God's grace was accountable to the God of the universe, this holy and perfect God, for his actions. Sapphira is accountable for her own behavior. Right? You don't get to cover yourself in someone else's faith. Someone else's righteousness. Just because your grandmother went to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just because your mom and dad believe this doesn't make you a Christian, right? There's, there's something in this that's personal that you've got to own on your own. She had, was accountable to the God of the universe. And what happens for her? He says, well, how do you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Again, this is Holy Spirit we're talking about. The Spirit who wants to do restorative work in Ananias and Sapphire's life. And they go, we don't need you, Holy Spirit. We just want to get credit for what it looks like to have you right? We're not really interested in a relationship with you. We're not really interested in for you to do some real work in our lives. We like who we are already. We like what we do already. We're just going to pretend so we can get a little bit of credit for this whole, you know, be included in the, in, in, in the church community. Verse 10, at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man then turned, showed back up. Man, what a terrible day. Came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Three hours apart, two people died. No, who kills them? Peter do it? God do it? Sure seems like it. Where are they now? Are they in hell? What do you do with this stuff? Like, there's, there's all sorts of really, really, really complicated, you know, ramifications for this. Did God murder them and then send them to hell? Is that, is that what we see? Or we, we, don't, we don't know the answer. It doesn't say that God struck them. It says that they died. And so people would come and go, well, maybe he didn't really kill them. Maybe they just had heart attacks. Okay, if that makes you feel better, I guess. But instead of trying to, you know, work the scriptures to a place that makes our hearts feel better about them, right? Kind of maneuver and mold so we feel a little better. Let's just, let's just actually take what we have here. Two people stand before God, or stand before Peter, who, who tells them that they have lied and conspired against the Holy Spirit. This work that's supposed to be restorative in our lives and in our world, and they had no interest in it, and then they both died. So the real reality is God was in on their death. So what, what, what do we do with that? Like, how do we answer that? 
like uh, about hell. Did they go to hell? I, I don't know the answer to that. Same thing with Judas. I, people go, well, he he's clearly committed suicide. Obviously, I don't believe that is a uh, like that. That is a determining factor of where you spend eternity, right? Because Jesus's blood covers all sins. I don't know where these guys' hearts were. I certainly hope that their one bad decision here doesn't uh, negate what Jesus' blood covers, right? So there's a real possibility they're in the church community. They believed in Jesus. They were in process, but as they're in process, they um, they uh, lied, and God used this as an, an example, right? And so you got those things. So I, I, I think it's inappropriate to go, yep, they're in hell. Well, there's a real possibility they could be in heaven, but again, scriptures don't say those things, so it doesn't really help us too much to kind of sort through those things. What we know to be true is they were living and now they're dead. That, that we know to be wholeheartedly true. And we know that they had an interaction with Peter who communicated on behalf of God, and then they died. So we would say Peter was in on it, the Holy Spirit was in on it, God was in on it, and these two people died. So let's just acknowledge that to be what we know to be true. Now, we also know that Ananias' name means God of mercy. That's really broken for us because how is this our God, God of grace? How, how, how is this God being merciful or gracious? There are some things we can point out here. I'd point it out even with, uh, you know, uh, Noah and the flood, like a whole generation's wiped out, like everybody dies. And what I would say in, in, in that statement is God can play the tape through. He can see a person's life. He can see what's going to happen, and he can go, nothing good's going to come from this. Is this going to be more pain and suffering for them and for others? The way that I would describe that terrible uh, you know, analogy, but the best I have is if you've got a dog who's really, really sick and in a ton of pain, one of the most merciful things you could do is put it to sleep, right? Same thing with a horse or animals that are beloved by you and your family. One of the most gracious and merciful things you can do is because you can play the tape forward. You can know that there's no good good going to come out of this, right? Uh, we know that when I told you earlier, Jesus says that apart from him, uh, we can do nothing good. So maybe God looks at that and goes, I can play the tape forward. The most gracious and merciful thing I can do for Ananias and Sapphira in this moment is to put them and others out of their misery. So maybe that would make you feel better. But again, I, that's all, all speculation right? Uh, perhaps it's an indictment on crazy mob rule where people don't really do things out of conviction. They do it out of what everybody else is doing, right? This is, the, you, you have to own your personal experience. You have to own your personal belief in the gospel. You have to own uh, the, the work that the Holy Spirit, you have to invite that work to be done in your life and not manufacture it, right? So maybe this is an indictment on that that God wants us to see. We do believe, I think it's evident here that um, there is a response that we should have out of this, right? And the response is fear. That's really, really important there. Um, perhaps this is that God's tired of our scheming. Right? There's, looks at it and goes, guys, I want the God of the universe wants his heaven to invade earth in the way that he initially set it up. And maybe this is just a, an instruction of this is what happens when we don't. Maybe this is a time that we look at this and take God really serious. Some things are there. But here's, here's what I do know. So this is what I'll tell you about this moment to help you kind of shape this. Um, when we saw last week with the miracle, the, 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 the lame beggar that gets healed, we go, well, God does a miracle there. That's supernatural intervention. You go, well, why does God do that? Is it to prove he's powerful? We know he's powerful. He spoke the world into existence. And why did Jesus do miracles? Is it so that people would, would trust him? I mean, he could have done more miracles, so why didn't he do all the miracles? Why didn't everybody fix? Why is there these moments? And what we can kind of understand about the reason that God does miracles in the scriptures is not just to give us evidence, right? Not to go, hey, so that you'll believe me, let me do the dog and pony show, right? None of that. What we understand is every miracle that Jesus does is a picture of what's to come. It is a small glimpse of what the coming kingdom looks like. 
There'll be no blind people. There'll be no lame people. Even the big wedding feast, there will be big parties and tons of celebration. That is a picture of the coming kingdom. That's what it's going to be like when we all get into glory. So every miracle is actually God setting the world back the way that it was intentionally designed in the beginning. So we see glimpse of that. Dead people shouldn't die, so they come back to life. We just see small glimpse. He doesn't do it for everyone, but they're all glimpse. Every supernatural intervention from the God of the universe and his spirit is all to kind of show us that, right? Those things. And so if that's the case, if that's the case, then this is another supernatural intervention. So it makes sense that this supernatural intervention would be the same kind of thing to go. There is a way by which things will be. This is, I want you to hear me. Lots of work to get here. This is a picture of what will eventually be for all people. Every single person will stand before a holy God and give an account, give an account for whether or not they invited the spirit into their life whether or not they trusted the Spirit to do the work in and through them, or whether or not they decided to manufacture it themselves. Right? Every single human being. There will be a day where we'll stand before a holy and perfect God, and that's fear-inducing. Grace and love, you've got to understand him. But in order to understand that he is gracious and loving, you've got to understand that the reason that he, we call him gracious is because there is something else we deserve, and we see this with Ananias and Sapphira. They are struck dead in that moment. You know why? Because that's fairness right? Luckily, God is not fair. He is not fair. He is gracious and kind, and so God uses Ananias' life in that moment to go, this is what will come for all people. Every single person, and this is not in vogue, this is not a cute message, every single person will stand before a holy and perfect God and give an account for their life. Literally, it says that they'll separate them like sheep and goats, right? Like there are this moment where we will stand before God. That's you and that's me. And God has all eternity to walk through our lives with us. That's not to scare you. That's not to try to manufacture something. What I'm telling you is you are in process. You cannot fix yourself. The goal was not for you to start manufacturing more fake righteousness. The goal is to acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves. That's what's so crazy about this. This is what the great irony of the gospel is, is when we refuse to acknowledge and confess our sin, it means we become accountable for it. But when we acknowledge our brokenness, God covers it, right? And so there's this, this need there to go, yeah, God, I'm just like Ananias and Sapphira. And so what I, what I, what we, when we struggle with this, is going, yep, this is what I think, this is what supernatural intervention happens. And so we always still ask the question, well, why did they die? And I just would say, I can't answer all that for you, but here's what I think is a better question. Instead of why did they die, why do we get to live? Why in this moment has God been slow to anger and steadfast, right? And gracious and kind, right? Why does Peter tell us that God doesn't want anybody to perish, but everyone comes to salvation through repentance, right? Why is God so gracious and kind to us? Why do we get to live? Like, why do you get to hear this right now? Why have we not had to stand before God the way that Ananias and Sapphira did? It's not like we're any better. And I would point out to God's great grace to go, he loves you. He wants to cover you. That banner of love, unfailing love, is available to you. The only part of the gospel that you get to participate in is your acknowledgement that you don't deserve it and you can't earn it and you need covering and protection from him. And it looks like that's what happens in, uh, in this picture. Acts uh, chapter 5 verse 11, it says this, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Fear. They feared God. They feared God. We don't like that word, but it's true and it's real. And John Piper, in one of his books, talks about 
how when you're like he talks about being the Himalayas and like this big massive storm right and just how fear inducing those massive storms over the mountains he said it's one thing to stand before that and be fearful of that it's another thing to find a little cave and sit in it and now you're out of harm's way you're not worried about dying you you know you feel like your life is it's saved and safe and yet you look out the cave and you still see this crazy massive storm that's just a couple feet away from you you're safe and protected but there is still some fear and some awe that you're you're kind of left with really that's what i hope we end up with here it's like your life's covered your life's covered but could you just get in the cave or maybe in your home right in your home it's a big snowstorm but you're in your home and you are safe and comfortable you're looking out and you're in awe of the power of that storm and yet you're sitting by the fire right that's what happens to these disciples. It says they all, great fear, seized the whole church and all who had heard these events. So we get to live. What you see happen in uh, verses 12 through 16 is all of a sudden they come together and you see the beauty of the gospel moving. And so people are coming together. They have a great fear of God. And just to be honest with you, what I think is missing in our church and in our nation and our world is not this grace and kindness and merciful God we know about him but we have lost this deep reverence and fear for a mighty, holy, perfect God and who does not let sin anywhere near him. J.D. Greer says, um, expecting God to let us in with our sin is a lot like a butterfly trying to land on the sun, right? And so this God is perfect and holy and the only way we get access to him is through the covering of what Jesus did. And all of a sudden we see in Acts chapter five, this movement happen as out of this reverence for God and then it says this a little bit later in Acts chapter 9 and it explains this great movement of the church and what happened. And this is what it explains in terms of how the growth happened. This is what it says. And the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord. That's one component. And encouraged by the Holy Spirit. So there's this fear and reverence for God and this comfort and empowerment and encouragement by the Holy Spirit. It increased their numbers and increase their numbers. So, what do we do with this? First, we pause and we thank God for his grace and his kindness and his covering of us. We don't deserve it. Two, we ask the Holy Spirit to come and invade every part of us. Like, the Holy Spirit, would you come and would you transform us? Not manufacture it. We acknowledge we're in process and we ask the Holy Spirit to do something real and genuine in our life. And then, as he does, as the Holy Spirit does that in our lives and in our world, we give him the credit for it. Right? We acknowledge we don't deserve it. We thank God for his grace. We invite the, the Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of the living God to come and invade our lives. And then, as he does great work in us, in our church, in our community, we give him all the credit. So what's about to happen in this moment is we're going to transition out of this message and we're going to sing a song and I would just beg you, beg you, even in your living room, that you would pay attention to the words of this song and that this song would be your prayer. I'm not going to lead you in a prayer. I want this song to be your prayer, your prayer, that the spirit of the living God would come and invade every part of us so that we can participate in the great work he has for us, our nation, and our world. You can't fix yourself. You can't do it, but the spirit of the living God can. So would you, would you sing this song? Would you pray this song with me? as we close our service.
Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, we only want to hear your voice, we're hanging on every word, Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, we want to know you more and more, we're hanging on every
Hey guys, uh, good job hanging in there. Certainly hope the spirit of the living God comes and invades every part of you. And just want to kind of point out a scripture that that John, who was walking with Peter uh, by the gate, beautiful last week, he wrote uh, letters to the church. And one of the things he says in one of those letters in First John one nine, he says, "If we confess our sin to God, if we don't hold on to it, if we don't hide it, if we confess our sin to God, He is faithful and just and will cleanse us, save us." all for us his righteousness right all unrighteousness will be just kind of purged out of us so sin hear me your sin my sin it is not fatal holding on to it and covering it up is sin is not fatal hiding it holding it up and covering it is and so may you this week be a person who is aware of your brokenness but even more aware of god's grace and god's spirit wanting to come and invade your life and put you in queue, put you in process to begin to be all that he makes you to be, right? And his spirit inside you is the goal by which we transform our community and our world. So may you walk with that spirit inside you this week. Thanks for joining us. Can't wait to see you next week. Have a great day.